beginning of a day at Amravati. Yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is the unknown. Now is the knowing. Use this as a kind of contemplation. So you establish in consciousness the way it is, just time, the what, how important we, what importance we give to time, to the past or the future. So much of our life is giving these very, the, the past some great significance in the present or the future. We can work like slaves always for some realization of some hope of getting something, achieving something in the future. So there's always this anxiety in our lives uh, as long as this false illusion of self exists, as long as we believe in it, you're always going to feel a sense of anxiety and fear because that is something that is an illusion that's not real, but because we do believe in, in ourselves as, as, as these death-bound conditions, then the result of that is a sense of lack of confidence, of always hesitation, doubt, worry, despair, depression, anxiety, fear. Is the common uh, common problems to all human beings. In the West, in uh, in the European society, American, these kind of highly complex uh, development of, of thought and everyone's educated. People have educations, they're trained to think and so we tend to live in a world very much created out of thought, not understanding. I mean, we tend to, to look at the, the natural world, what we call nature, as as something quite separate from ourselves. We contemplate nature, we think of going out and looking at trees or mountains. There's something that we must go and watch and and uh, find and seek for some kind of spiritual refreshment. Because when you're living in a world created by your ideas, and feelings, and of course the the natural world, uh, the material world that we see with the eye, is something we we don't relate to all that well. It's it's alien to us. We interpret it through sentiment or through aesthetics or through seeing it as as something that pleases us or doesn't. But we we don't feel uh, uh, that we're really much a part of it all. How many of you really feel you're a part of this whole universal system? Or how many of you are so caught in, a, in an isolated identity of yourself that you can't even have, feel a part of anyone else or even feel complete in yourself? Mm-hmm. People have trouble even staying married to each other these days because they, can't, they don't even know how to have a, a communion, how to how to unite with someone else. 
in any real uh, in physically they try to do it but but in other ways they're they're not together at all so we find ourselves increasingly more kind of as they say out on the limb stuck in a, in an uh, in a difficult uh, uncomfortable position of selfish self-importance, obsessions with ourselves, and the result is an anxiety, fear. Like last night, I was talking about the, the, uh, just the human condition of, of being uh, a vulnerable entity in a mysterious universe. Being sensitive, having all this this sensitivity, and being in a condition of vulnerability, open at any time to being hurt, harmed, mutilated, insulted. We're in that situation. Notice the animal world. Contemplate the animal kingdom. And it's, and it's very much living in a world of fear all the time. You go into the forest, you see the, like the squirrels and that, uh, always have to be on, uh, they always have this instinct for preservation. When they run out of the trees, they're alert to any kind of movement because their life is in danger all the time. The animal kingdom, you see, doesn't have any kind of moral agreements. They, it's just, uh, you know, survival of the fittest. So that uh, a fox uh, eats, uh, will kill a, a squirrel or a rabbit. And so rabbits have to be careful to, to not put themselves in the way of foxes. And all these predatory, the life of, uh, of the predators, of survival. So that one has to be alert to this ever-present danger of being killed or being attacked, being harmed. In civilization, say in human civilization, we we create a, a society where we try to uh, say, present a, a, a structure where we feel safe. So we have government. So civilization is that in itself, isn't it? To civil laws and where we all agree to obey the laws and people who don't are punished and, and uh, we all agree to live in some kind of trusting relationship, at least try, so that we aren't constantly having to spend every day looking out to see if somebody's going to come at, at us with an axe or a pick. I mean, even now it's getting more that way, isn't it, to cities like London. <laughs> And New York, <laughs> it's back to the jungle oftentimes in the big cities now because you don't, they aren't safe anymore. There's all people don't agree to a moral, uh, they don't have moral agreements, ethical agreements anymore. It's all each one for themselves. It's tending more towards that, isn't it? Becoming lawless, uncivilized jungles where the wild animals now are the wild, uh, untrained, uncivilized human beings that live in these, in these 
concrete jungles. You see, people just, uh, you hear about all the time, people in killing or stealing, burglary. In London, they have to have, uh, if you walk into Chelsea, or some of those very wealthy areas of London, they have all kinds of burglar alarm systems hanging from the houses, <laughs> television kind of cameras and uh, everything trying to prevent burglars from going and taking all the, their nice things. You can't trust anyone. So we live in a, in a world of fear and anxiety because we are sensitive and vulnerable and easily damaged, easily harmed. And so we, when we don't reflect and understand our existence and what we, what we need to learn how to endure and be aware of, then of course we, we seem to be, uh, we, we live in a world maybe of fantasy, of false security, uh, and then feeling disappointed and depressed when the unexpected, the the, the unkind, the, the violent or whatever happens to us or around us, we're unprepared. We think of like natural disasters, just nature itself will have its go at us, won't it? And earthquakes and floods and uh, so that even that is we, we, something that we have to be aware of, that the ever-present danger of just nature doing something that will harm us. Wild animals aren't so much a problem these days, are they? Bears and so forth don't stalk the, the forests of Hertfordshire. But there are kind of like... Uh, psychopathic killers and rapists and that. <laughs> when, we, when we came to Amravati over a year ago, there was a psychopathic uh, killer stalking, uh, uh, killing women in, and men in this area. The ladies of Great Gadsden had grouped together with, with guns to protect themselves. <laughs> but you need where they caught him. Uh, it's all right now. But there might be another one around, you don't know. <laughs> so life is dangerous, being thrown out into, into uh, a universe, onto a planet in a, in an, in a vulnerable condition such as being a human being means that we are always subjected to danger of some sort. It is a dangerous situation, let's face it. It's not, we, we don't, maybe we want to think of it as, oh, as safe and secure, but it's dangerous and now we see how dangerous it is with the modern governments of superpowers and that, making uh, terrible weapons that can really uh, do much worse than anything, you know, cause more misery to everything than can we can even imagine. 
But it is a very, very strange situation being a human being. To me, I've always thought it a very strange thing. What is the purpose of it? Is it the pleasures we have are really not that much fun? The things that people are living their lives for, to me, are, are not really worth very much. They have money or, or have a good time, go to shows, listen to music, sex and all these things are not really all that good. They're so they get boring and they're, they're, not tr- they always, they're never truly satisfying. And yet we're asked in the modern materialist system to, to believe these things are really fulfilling, wonderful achievements. When I hear people talking about the utopian society, I cringe. Because I cannot imagine a human society as being anything other than a transition, some kind of temporary uh, ordeal that we're going through to learn something. But as an end in itself, I can't see it as being worth anything. And living as a human being in in a state of human... Uh, uh, as a human being with the human values forever as an end in itself to me uh, is, is, has, is meaningless, it's foolish, it's childish. Because this is, seems obvious to, to me to be a transition, a movement, a changing thing that we're experiencing and that is something to be contemplated and understood rather than to try to find anything within it as, uh, to make a, that as an end in itself. To see that anything, like even a utopian human society where everything's fair and just and, and equal distribution of wealth and, and all these kind of ideals, idealism, they all sound very nice, but Ideals always, uh, you know, they're like the Buddha Rupa. They don't, they aren't sensitive. Ideals have no, they're not sensitive at all. Ideals are fixed. Kind of images of perfection. But images of perfection have no sensitivity, do they? Like that Buddha Rupa, Buddha Rupa here, you can swear at it, Use the foulest language, doesn't bother the least, not the slightest, slightest twitch. You can't hurt its feelings, no matter what you call it. And uh, you can kick it, spit on it, do the most horrible things to it, but it doesn't, and it doesn't hurt, doesn't mind. It just sits there because it's an ideal, it has no senses. It's a form, an ideal form, is all. So, so are ideal governments and ideals of everything. They're, they're beautiful forms and they're, they're something to be respected. But they can never be ends in themselves because we're living in a very sensitive, changing environment.
So we have to experience things that are not ideals at all. We have to live a life that a good part of it can be very painful or very uh, uh, dangerous, very frightening to us. We have bodies that, that uh, no matter how hard we try to make them perfect physical specimens, they, they change in ways that we don't expect them to. Diseases and, and uh, accidents and just the aging process of the body. So that we realize we're in a very vulnerable position and that, that it's not an ideal situation. It is a very real, changing, sensitive thing that we're involved in from birth to death of this body. <coughs> so what we can do with it, rather than trying to, to run away or hide, you can't, wherever you run, you're going to be in the same position, so there's no place to go, really. It's a matter of opening up to it. of contemplating it, ref learning from it, reflecting on it, rather than trying to find some little place where, where you can have a false sense of security. Now, I noticed like in uh, West Sussex, down near Chithurst, kind of idyllic, uh, beautiful English countryside with beautiful homes, cottages, uh, where people try to hold on, the, the, low, the people in that area try to hold on to an image, to an ideal of old England uh, with English things and all the things that English people feel secure with. They like to have that feeling that England is all right, that the Englishness of England and all the things they value are going to be there. They're going to protect them at all cost. <laughs> So Buddhist monks, when we first arrived, were, were persona non grata with many people because we didn't look, we don't look very English. Look like some alien force coming out to disrupt, <laughs> disrupt this sense of security. The polo ponies and the cricket uh, games and little shootings. Uh, uh, pheasant huntings and fox hunting, all these kind of useless things that people think are so important to preserve. Fox hunting. What a horrible sport that is. <laughs> That's very English. It should be preserved at all costs and not let those alien weirdos in. So people do want to have uh, have environments where the, the things of their culture and their family or that kind of protect and preserve for this sense of security. It's like in South Africa now, you can see the, the attempts at the white people to hold on to uh, a lifestyle and uh, the power they, they're used to having to protect themselves out of fear and being only a very small percentage of an enormous population, most of it black. And the, the fear that, and the desperation of trying to hold on to this image of this, of this lifestyle, protect it and keep it. Because if you let all those black people in on it, they're going to ruin it. It's not going to be the same. 
so that they uh, there's this desperate attempt to hold on, keep it to what we know, what we feel safe. We have to have power and wealth to give us that illusion. We have a lot of political power and wealth and prestige. Then we can kind of protect our interests and preserve our way of life. But now, as spiritually evolving beings, we're not asking that anymore. We're like throwing ourselves out into the unknown mystery, mysterious universe, completely vulnerable, without any demands on it. No kind of asking God for any special privileges or any special protections. We're not, uh, we're like, we're not asking for wealth or power or for utopian society or even for justice or mercy or anything. As a spiritual evolving being, we have to take the risk of always being in the in right in the middle of the mystery, ever present to the dangers and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, admitting it. So in this way one becomes fearless rather than trying to protect uh, our sense of security and safety that we we depend on. When we become dependent in that way, when we when we fix on something and depend on something, it makes us weak and frightened and we, we have to always protect our interests, even if we have to offend or hurt other people to do so. You can see it with the superpower. The United States feels very, very threatened by the Soviet Union. It has an incredible paranoia because the Soviet Union uh, has this kind of aura of invincibility, like it's going to take over the world. And it gives this impression, this Marxian communism, and that, that it's invincible, that it's, it's a kind of seeping force that's, that's going to get win out in the end. And even though it, and the United States feels that it's there to stop it, the focus of evil, to, to try to keep the flood of communism back, at least way, as way from the United States. <laughs> they see it creeping into Central America now. Oh, they're absolutely going crazy over that. And Nicaragua and all that. Cuba was a very hard blow for the Americans. Castro made Cuba into a communist state because it's this fear of this invincible evil force that's moving slowly, infiltrating, seeping into every nook and cranny and is going to creep up over all of Europe someday, take over the whole world. That's a fear, isn't it? And we've got to protect ourselves at all costs. So making, we have to make all these terrible weapons and we have to to spend enormous amounts of energy and money and everything else on this sense of defense and protection. That's the priority, isn't it now? Spending enormous amounts of money on defense and protection. And these things that we, we defend ourselves with are more dangerous than, the, than communism. 
the nuclear weapons that the United States stockpiles are really more dangerous to the United States than the Soviet communists. <laughs> so in trying to protect themselves from, the, from this insidious evil force of communism, they've created another more evil force within their own system. So what is this? This is an example for us, isn't it, of, of, of what fear and ignorance do. The kind of results of living with the wrong views and the wrong way, not understanding things, and just trying to protect our interests at the expense of others. And if we have to blow up the rest of the world to protect the United States, is that, is that something... <laughs> That doesn't, that doesn't make me feel safe at all. Maybe I should move back there. <laughs> I always say England is the, is, is the prime target now. Every, it's got so many missile bases on it. And what am I doing here? <laughs> but there's no place safe, is there? on this planet anymore. There never was. And safety doesn't, there's no safety in it. This life is not meant to be safe because it all ends in death anyway. What is born dies. So it is a transition, something going through a change. And like this body, this human existence is something to to be reflected on and understood rather than something to be grasped or rejected. To try to hold on to being a human being as an end in itself will only lead to anxiety and fear and despair or the rejection of it. Trying to live in a, in a, non, in a kind of idyllic world, an ivory tower, a rejection of, of our human uh, vulnerability by living in a false reality, false world of, of safety and beauty that we create. That's not the way either. But in understanding, opening and reflecting, understanding this strange thing that we're involved in. All of us are involved in it, aren't we? We all have to live this, this span of life in, in this form, in this vulnerable, sensitive form as a human being. Now, how, whether you're willing, what you're willing to do with it, that's up to you. There's no, no one that can force you. Spiritual evolution is something we have to take on ourselves. It's not something that some, someone can can kind of push you into. Because to awaken to truth means that you, that, that you, have to, you have to do it yourself. You have to put forth that effort. So that religion, when forced on someone else, of course, is not, fulfill, is, is not really uh, doing, it can't really help us. It ends in inhibiting or, or making us uh, just conditioning us to a, to a kind of religious viewpoint, but not awakening, uh, awakening us to truth. 
like what so much of religion now is merely going around trying to kind of frighten people into being good isn't it? or or trying to convince people to believe in certain things to believe in God or believe in Jesus or whatever so that we we can um, this kind of approach is merely a conditioning process it's not an awakening one when I if I start telling you what to believe in and then then what happens? You either believe, you say, I believe Venerable Sumato, I have a lot of respect for him, so what he says must be right, and I believe everything he's saying, as one position you can say. <laughs> or you can say, I don't believe anything. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Total rejection. Or then, it might not be but I don't know, who am I to know, the kind of wishy-washy agnostic. (laughs) So, say, telling you what to believe in forces you to either believe or disbelieve or to take a kind of, uh, that kind of... uh, agnostic position, not being quite sure what it's all about and getting confused by it. So, actually just trying to condition you into, into being a Buddhist is, not, is, is of no value. I don't value that at all. Just trying to, to kind of uh, make you in, into, a, into a Buddhist by conditioning you with the Buddhist ideas. But using Buddhist teachings to awaken is using this ability to reflect on the way things are. So we, just the morning reflection that this is the beginning of a day. We begin, we're aware of the feeling we have, of the mood, of the physical situation, being cold or hot or comfortable or uncomfortable or, or feeling uh, pain or hunger. We begin to look at these things rather than just react to them. So that this, these, these strange human experiences are in, arising in a conscious state where we can let them go. It's through this door of consciousness that things pass away and cease. And, it, and that which we never allow into consciousness will always come back, will always be reborn. Now consciousness is not is not it can't is only the door. So we have to use wisdom, mindfulness, and wisdom to open that door. So in our practice now, we're we're actually mindfully watching and 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 opening that door, bringing letting things or even leading things through that door. The fears and anxieties and repressed feelings and all that, we can bring through that door, through sati, through mindfulness, panya, wisdom, sampachanya, self-awareness, self-understanding. Now the teaching, uh, the, the very clear 
teaching that, that is, will be your guide is the two lines, Sape, Sankara, Nicha, all conditioned phenomena is impermanent. And we contemplate this, all thoughts, all feelings, all desires. All that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, all that we think, all that we remember, all that we can create in the mind, those are those things are impermanent. Sape Sankara. Sankara is the Pali word for karmic formations or compounded phenomena. So this constant refrain of anicca, of impermanence, we keep looking at this impermanent, watching, just the, like the beginning of the inhalation in the end. An inhalation is impermanent. An exhalation is impermanent. Actually, you're not just, you're not assuming that. You're actually watching how things begin and end. Just with your thoughts now, think, think, I am a human being. Deliberately think that and become aware of the space around that thought. So that before you think it, you're right on the verge, right on the edge of thinking I, but before you, you, you think it, and you're deliberately thinking it, the mind's quite empty, isn't it? Note that emptiness, that hesitant, that just before you start thinking, you have to deliberately think, just before you start thinking, hesitate. Note that, that gap, there's alertness, isn't there? There's alertness. You have to be alert, attentive to that gap, that space, and then deliberately think, I am a human being. And at the end, end of being, what's left? See if you can sustain that alertness at the end of human being. Just that emptiness, because there's no thought there, but there's alertness and attentiveness. So note that, make that, use that as a sign more and more to develop what we call empty mind. Not just the thinking mind where goes one thought to another, but note that where there's alertness, attentiveness, so we use deliberate thinking in order to uh, bring our attention to the space around a thought. Now do it again. It's the I. And then there's a gap, isn't there? Between I and then am. And am, there's a gap. Between am and a. And then a, there's a gap between a and human. And there's nothing but space, is there? And the, and the thought itself is merely something that goes through that. Like through this room. We walk through this room. If we're all caught up in ourselves, we're, we're always, we don't even, you know, we, don't, we aren't aware of the space around us. We're all we're involved in me and mine. I come into this room and I have so many problems and I have 
want this and I don't like that and what I think of you and what I think of that and what I think of the world and, and I like this and I don't like that. So I'm coming in into a room, a big room like this, full of space, but my mind's just a clutter with me and mine. So even though the, the space around is there all the time, the, the mind is, 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 I'm caught in this tight little uh, limited self, nasty kind of obsessions with myself all the time. And even when I'm in the wide open spaces, out in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Texas, I can still be caught in this tiny little self, me and mine. And I saw that when I was in Borneo. I thought, beautiful, idyllic situation, beautiful sea, coral waters, palm trees, white sand beaches, French brandy, <laughs> champagne, water skiing. Chinese food, paradise. Except wherever I went, there's this tight little beam going around. Self-conscious, critical, obsessed with himself. So that even on a beautiful palm-covered island, white sand beaches, with the nicest people, warm sun, there's this sense of me and mine, a kind of, it's like a big cloud that follows one, goes wherever you go. And it's a, an obsessive habit that one has out of not understanding things, not opening to the space, to the emptiness. Now this practice of watching, of noting the space around thought, if you're just thinking Habitually, you're going from one thought to another, so you deliberately think something. So you can think in Swiss German if you want. It just works the same for any language. <laughs> Doesn't have to be in English. Thai if you want. <laughs> any language works. There's I am a human being. That's a completely... Uh, that is a uh, reason why I chose that particular sentence is because it, it doesn't arouse any emotion in me. It doesn't, you know, such a kind of matter-of-fact thing, doesn't, it isn't controversial. We're not going to argue the point, are we? If I say I am a human being, nobody's really going to argue about that. It's not a hot issue. So we take some, something totally neutral like that and say, I am a human being, in order to just, not, not because it's a, the, the sense of self is not at all interesting, so we can look at the space. If the sentence is terribly interesting, we become fascinated with it. You know, if we're thinking a, a very interesting thought, then we become fascinated with the thought. But we use a boring thought like, I am a human being, we are we're more willing to look at the space around it. Now to note the space around thought, you, this attentiveness, 
alertness, just listening, like inner listening, like you're listening to yourself thinking. So you're deliberately thinking, I am a human being, but listening to the silence or the space, Now you're, you're noting, you're, you're investigating the mind. There's that space or emptiness. When we call emptiness, empty uh-huh. mind, it's that, that much. It's just when you're aware, you don't notice that, do you? When you're just, if you, if you don't pay special attention to the space around a thought, you don't notice it. It's there all the time. It's not that it, it, it's never there, it's just that you may not notice it. The habit is not to notice, isn't it, to, to go from one thought to another. People don't know their minds, they don't know themselves, so they don't know when they're not thinking. Some people believe that they're thinking all the time. That, that, that's a, just an endless process of thoughts going on one right after another. But that's not the case. We're not thinking all the time. But we don't know when we're not thinking. We don't notice that. We only, we're so caught up with thoughts that that's all we know is thoughts. Thinking about this, thinking about that, worrying, doubting, planning, scheming, feeling angry, feeling depressed, feeling happy. Uh, so, so just, uh, we just are, we are identified with, with thoughts, with feelings so much that that's what we, that was, that's what we believe when we're alive, when we feel alive. We're, we're usually having some kind of extreme emotional, pleasurable experience. But when there's no thought and no emotion, there's just, there's just emptiness, clarity, brightness, attentiveness. Emotions and thoughts go through that emptiness, like this room. People, all kinds of people can go through this room during the day. Happy people, depressed people, beautiful, ugly, young and old, black and white, intelligent and stupid, <laughs> criminals and saints. Right. It goes through the space. The space is is the same, isn't it? It doesn't. The space in this room doesn't really mind what is in it. If the space in this room, a criminal can be here, or a saint, God, or the devil, <laughs> whatever. The space is quite all right. It doesn't it isn't damaged by the things that go through it. Same with the mind. Whatever goes through the mind can be anything. The conditions could be any quality, but the space is just that. It's spacious. It's not good space. It's not bad. It's not male or female. It's not, it has no quality other than being spacious. Now, being aware of space, of emptiness, being the knowing, in other words, attentive, alert, we begin to to move towards the space of the mind rather than just being caught up in the habits of thought, going from this to that. This is a way of training yourself. <coughs> 
to be increasingly more aware of the empty mind. It does take some effort. You have to, you have to use this ability. You have to. You can't just try to, to conceive emptiness and then find it. It's not. It's not a theory or an idea. It's an actual experience of knowing that. So, like here in this room, if you, if you note the space of this room. What do you do? You, you, you withdraw your fascination and attention to the objects. Just with, with the people in this room, I can, I can concentrate on the person or the space around the person. But most of the time, my, I was always conditioned to just see the person and not the space around them. So one gets caught up with liking this person, not liking that person, being attracted, being repelled, so forth, by the person. The space around each of us is neither attractive nor repulsive, is it? It's just space. So in that, when we're aware, when we're knowing and aware of the space, of the emptiness, it gives us this coolness, this calmness, that we don't have when we're just reacting to the to the people or to the conditions. Now, this contemplate. If I look at the space between each one of you, that doesn't excite. One tends to that tends to be a calming experience. Space isn't doesn't excite the mind. It doesn't depress the mind. It has no quality uh, to it, so that it more or less is. It uh, frees the mind from elation and depression. So when you're looking at the spaces between people, one feels calm. When you start looking at the people, then you then you have uh, certain thing, other things arise, like being attracted or repelled, or or liking or disliking, and thinking about them, judging, criticizing. All that starts going on when you start becoming fascinated with the people. Apply that inwardly. See the, see the mind itself, the emptiness. Where the, now, to know the emptiness is to keep that alertness. Like listening. Listen to the silence of the mind. You can hear when... When in the, the silence you can hear the sound, kind of reverberating sound of silence in the mind. Kind of like a high uh, pitched, almost electronic sound. And you think I am a human being, and then sustain your attention at the end of being. Just that alert, attentiveness, sustain that, listening. Maybe you can hear the, the sound of silence, or the sound of the mind. I've developed this particular technique, I found it very useful deliberate thinking. You can use even a more 
kind of emotional thoughts. But when you start deliberately thinking it, you're looking at the space so that the, the, the thought itself is seen as something arising and ceasing in the, in, the, in the mind rather than giving it more importance than, than, than it need have. You can think, I am a hopeless case. One, one monk used to have a constant refrain. He said from, from childhood, he always had a constant refrain throughout his whole life, I'm no good, I'm no good. Whatever he was doing, even though he was very good, very good monk actually, then everybody thought he was very good, and nobody ever uh, thought he wasn't any good, but in this kind of obsession, obsessing, I'm no good, I'm no good. So if you have that kind of problem, an obsessive thought, then use it, deliberately think it, but for the space around it, not for the, not to convince yourself that that's uh, the, the truth of the way it is. <laughs> you can to see that even the kind of obsessions of your mind are merely conditions in them, so that you can see them arise and cease in the space. But to see the space, means that you're, you're not giving the thought all the attention. It's no longer the important thing in the mind, is the thought. I'm no good. It's merely something that arises and ceases. It's, it's in a perspective. It's not the dominant uh, thing anymore. It's part of, it's something that uh, arises and, and ends in the mind itself. What's left over? I'm no good. I'm no good, is silent, isn't it? There's clarity, there's attentiveness, there's silence. Sustain your attention on that. See how long you can just stay with that. If you can, can hear this, this kind of primordial sound of the mind, kind of a high-pitched uh, sound in the mind. Like you actually can hear and sustain your attention on that for a while, letting things go. Then if you, if you start thinking, or mind starts wandering, then deliberately think something again. This sense of I am, now we're looking at this, this is very strong in human beings, is I am. So rather than trying to take the view, the theoretical view that we don't have a self, like sometimes people in Buddhism feel that they have to believe that they don't have a self. <laughs> but instead, we're actually taking that very feeling, I am, and looking at it. This sense of I am, and the space around it. And, and from that, when you know the space of your mind, then you have a, then your mind, then your ability to reflect is very good. Because you, you have like seeing things. You, you're not. You're you. You can let go of things. You can allow things to go. You don't have to go from one thing to another anymore. You can, you can stop, let things cease. So we're not trying to convince ourselves that we don't exist or we don't have any self, 
But this this self that arises out of ignorance is what we're looking at. This habitual uh, self, self-feeling of self that arises and ceases, we're looking at that. Because that's not self. That's merely uh, a false self. It feels like oneself. One believes it to be oneself. So that we're looking at it now, in a, in, a, in, a, in a perspective, not of judging it, not making any judgments, criticizing it, or praising it, or rejecting it, but noting it. And it's that, that image of I am, I am a man, I am a woman, I am a monk, I am a human being, I am whatever. But the thought is no longer the important issue. Is it the space? Really, right now your intention is to note the space or the emptiness, the spaciousness of mind, rather than the than giving a lot of attention to the thought. Like right now, I can I'm I can I'm conscious of that, but I can talk at the same time. It's, a, it's where your mind is. Is uh, you get, you have you, you can reflect. You can you can talk. You're not kind of shut away. You're not having to reject the world and concentrate on anything because in that space, in the empty mind, then one is quite capable of working or doing, speaking. Uh, doing what one has to do as a human being in the empty mind where if you're concentrated on refined states then you have to shut away things if I'm going into a high level of concentration I can't talk to you anymore to close my eyes can't look at you anymore and if you're coughing or sneezing or you have to have to go someplace where there's no noise they're distracting sounds and uh, to keep everything like go off to a cave in the dark cave where there's no sound and no light and I can really get this powerful high conscious state but as soon as I leave and there's sounds and distracting things around then uh, then it's gone what good is it except that it, it's very nice while you can control the environment but once you're out of control uh, you're subject to even because you've attached to that refined state you find the rest of the world even more coarse more unbearable than it was before I remember going, trying to get these high states of consciousness and then you then I'd, then I'd go back I remember wa- walking one time in the town in Thailand in Nong Kai and I was in a state of heightened awareness, and everything was just too much for me. I just <laughs> it's like life was just beating on me, punching me wherever I looked. It is <laughs> just ordinary street scene in in Nong Kai was like, which hadn't really bothered me much before, but in that state it was like being bruised all the time. 
Now this isn't that, this isn't high like that, this is, this is clear but not high. So that you can operate in the world without, without having to reject it. This is a very, it's a balanced state in other words.